0: this week on Life and Faith.
1: I started to really resent the boyfriend because he didn't look like he had made any room for her. So you experience that frustration as you have to pick up the boyfriend's stuff and move it closer to his other stuff to create room for this character's stuff. (laughs)
2: An opinion you can change like you change a shirt but a worldview is something like your skin color it's part of who you are
1: i want to be able to read for two hours with no one interrupting me
2: i said i know what i'll do
1: will be heretical but i don't want it to be blasphemous
0: Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. I'm Natasha Moore. And I'm Justine Toe. And today we're bringing you another edition of Seen and Heard. Now, if you remember way back at the beginning of the year, the three of us spoke about what we've been reading, watching and listening to. I took us through Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen's podcast. Justine spoke about the latest TV adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand and Natasha read us some memorable passages from Patricia Lockwood's memoir, Priest Daddy. I found that very hilarious.
2: I did inflict a number of passages on <laughs> you did. I mean, a lot has happened since then. Uh, I'm currently reading Patricia Lockwood's first novel, No One Is Talking About This. Um, that's the name of the novel, not that no one's talking right. about her novel. They are actually talking about it. <laughs> it was um, shortlisted for the booker, so they are. Um it, well, this year it wasn't quite the end of the world, as in Stephen King, but millions of Australians did live through their own renewed COVID nightmare fire extended lockdowns in Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, they did. And I was one of them. And I was so glad... Let me tell you
1: that Ted Lasso season two dropped right in time for me to have something to hang on to and look forward to at the end of the week. I think uh, Ted Lasso season one was the UK and the US's favourite lockdown watch for 2020, and it was definitely mine of 2021. I came to actually consider it as the 30 minutes a week where I could feel all the feelings before I kind of just numbed myself (laughs) to get through tears. (laughs) Hey, how y'all doing? I'm Ted Lasso, your new coach.
0: You must be Miss Welton.
1: Oh, please, call me Rebecca. Miss Welton's my father.
0: If that's a joke, I love it. If not, I cannot wait to unpack that with you. Hey, look at
2: Isaac. He looks like Rodan
0: sculpturing cleats. Boots. Hmm? They call cleats boots. I thought you said that the trunk of the car was a boot. Also a boot. Hold on now. If I were to get fired from a job where I'm putting cleats in the trunk of my car. You got the boot I'm putting boots in the boot. <laughs> I love that.
1: Speaking as we were mere moments ago about time, I unfortunately don't have any. I have a branding meeting.
2: Oh, I always feel so bad for the cows, but you got to do it, otherwise they get lost. That was a branding joke. If we we're in Kansas right now, I'd just be sitting here waiting for you to finish laughing.
1: Now, Simon, Ted Lasso is your seen and heard entry this time round, and uh, I hope you don't mind me asking, when did you see the
0: light? And come around to this show. <laughs> yeah, I was late to it. Both of you and others were telling me to watch this. And it wasn't that I was resisting, but I don't know. It just took me a while. There are
2: many things to watch.
0: There are so <laughs> many things to watch. But now I'm a full-blown evangelist for Ted Lasso. <laughs> I've got friends watching it. My parents are watching it. And I'm pleased See, to say so they're satisfying.
2: loving it. This is why we do the seen and heard thing, right? Because <laughs> it's so satisfying to tell people that this thing is awesome and you should watch it. And then they love it. No,
0: know. It's especially gratifying. And, and look, I was, as I say late to it, but it was also my lockdown favourite. I've loved it. And we missed it. We had a Ted Lasso hole in our lives when (laughs) season two ended, I must admit.
2: So for people who have yet to watch it, Mm. I'm sure they will now, tell us what it's about, Simon.
0: Yeah. When I saw the shorts to this, I wasn't sure that I'd like it, Uh, but it is the story of this sort of hokey American football coach from Kansas, that is an American football coach, who ends up as the coach of an English Premier League football team. He knows nothing about the game, truly nothing, and you have to sort of go with the setup for that. But the whole thing is about how that unfolds. And uh, it ends up being really not so much about the football at all, but Yes, the characters. thank God. No, <laughs> you, yes, that's a good warning. Yeah, you wouldn't resisting. have to be slightly interested in football to love this. Because football we, is life. Everyone <laughs> will know who's seen the film, yeah.
1: seen the show.
2: Well, because it actually started life. The character of Ted Lasso started as a gimmick and a joke in some ads yes. for ESPN. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think they finally got the broadcast rights to the English Premier League. And mm. so they used
0: this character to promote that.
2: So you would think it would just be cheesy and not really work, but...
0: It's a bit cheesy, but it does work.
2: Mm. Um, why do you think that it really does work for so many people? Why are people so into it?
0: The characters are so um, likeable and believable, even though they're all a bit of an exaggeration, but they're somehow believable. And it does deliver... Um, let us I want to hear what you guys think about this too, but it does deliver something lovely and... Inspiring, and you find yourself, despite how kind of cheesy it is, getting all moved, and you know, trying not to, choking up yeah, a little choking bit. Choking up so a little bit occasionally, I'd have Your to Friday tears as to. well. <laughs> <laughs> I would admit to that. Yeah, and it's all kindness, and you know, being the best version of yourself you can be. This kind of thing, but also, he is taking this group of people who are a complete ramshackle mess, and the whole thing is a culturally disastrous club and environment, and this kind of force of nature that this character is through being such a nice, kind, thoughtful person is really endearing. And it's probably a bit, maybe we all feel it. it's a bit rare, but, but perhaps we thirst for something like this.
2: And I feel as though season one particularly is kind of the story of him coming into a setting, particularly as like a uh, maybe middle American, um, like very... Upbeat, friendly guy <laughs> coming into like cynical, <laughs> oh, yeah. British, um, sarcastic, <laughs> um, and overcoming one by one all these people who are very cynical about him and about his affect. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, a favorite character for me was like Trent Krim, the independent, oh, I love him. the journalist yeah. who's very like you know he's a sports journalist and this guy knows nothing about football and does a profile on him, which is expected to totally tank his career and get him fired, but. He wins him over because he's genuinely lovely. It's not some fake.
0: No. And the way he, sometimes against everyone's better cynicism and so on, he does win them over. Uh, Really tough people, resistant to him, to his charms. Cynical at first about what he might offer them. And there's something powerful about that. And you kind of believe that it could happen. So there's this Mm. article in Vanity Fair that describes the first season and it ends by saying, Perhaps there really are nice people in the world. Maybe we could be that too. And it, it, honestly, it has that that power.
1: What I really like, though, as well, is that it offers such a canny critique in some ways of a lot of the things that we're living through, really. Like, Ted is really kind to the one of the most downtrodden members of the cast. In fact, probably of the whole show which is the assistant, um, he becomes the assistant manager in the second season. Sorry for the spoilers. But in season one, he is such a bullied, kind of like really marginalized figure. And when he, that character experiences growth throughout that season, I was just like, weeping because it's such a beautiful... I mean, it's really, it's quite a a Christian vision of the last becoming the first, the (laughs) first in some ways becoming the last. But then in season two, you start to see power corrupts. And you can't expect that people who are victims, let's say, will be wonderful once they get their time in the sun. So the show is really clever about, yes, it's about kindness, but What if you're kind to someone who was downtrodden, but then when they rise in the world, they actually aren't kind themselves? Like, it's such an interesting, very rich show.
0: And it is, especially season one, is partly about seeing people. You know, we've had the Richard Johnson lecture on attentiveness, but it is all about that. Attentiveness to people, noticing them, seeing them as real people and the the things that can come out of that, but also being a bit more self-aware. Understanding yourself and your your impact on other people, the way that your wounds can then wound other people. Mm. Uh, There's all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, it's subtle ish and it's kind of complex. It's it's really clever. I
2: found this really. I read a a comment recently in an article, which was actually about Squid Game, which has since become the most watched show on Netflix. Uh, And it was talking about how, which is obviously a for those who haven't heard of it, it's like a terrible tale of like the poor and the downtrodden, the desperate being kind of channeled into a sort of Hunger Games scenario where they get it's killed and, and, you know. Yeah. So, um, and kind of making this throwaway comment about Ted Lasso that they were like, well, people loved watching Ted Lasso, but you turn from that to the real world and you're like, oh, it's it's got nothing to say to the world we actually live in, whereas Squid Game <laughs> is gritty realism. And I was a bit like,
0: really? Like, no. I don't. No, I Do we
2: really think that Squid Game shows us humanity and Ted Lasso doesn't?
0: No, this is what I meant. I think it, Ted Lasso, even with the contrived setup mm. and all that, does make you think, actually, no, this, is, this can happen. Like, and well, it makes you want to be that as well yeah. and ages Don't you think it's showing things?
1: you the power of pastoral care right like mm. seeing people as people not just as workers let's say or as you know students who have to
2: do like perform these assessments etc as expensive contracts in a Football team. Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah, they're they're yeah. not simply players, they're people. I mean, he's very emphatic that he wants them to flourish on and off the field. And he kind of just spreads that like it's like a good plague. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. A Aww. plague of kindness. The yeah.
0: virus of Ted Lasso. <laughs> but you know what? I used to coach rugby, and cricket, a bit of basketball as well. Watching this, Almost made me want to go back and do it. Oh, like it get out, quite, really? It, it yeah, make well, you am identified uh, with Ted. Uh, well, you know, it made me realise what you can achieve with a group of people uh, with the right ingredients, you know, mm. in the cake, you know, if you can bring that to the...
1: Do you remember in season one where he says, being a good coach is like being a good dad? Mm. So do you want to have more children then? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look... You got to know when it's time to hang the boots up, so to speak. I've
1: I've hung the boots up. I've uh, closed the shop. I've all of the metaphors. Yes,
2: <laughs> Simon, you're working on a book about masculinity. Mm. Um, did you feel as though Ted Lasso contributed? Something? Is it gonna is it going to appear in the book? There are a lot of particularly season two, a lot of daddy issues. Yes, there are come
0: in. definitely. Well, there'll be mentions of it in, in this book, and absolutely it did. Um, there's a, a contrast between what the team starts out as with lots of elements of that toxic kind of male culture. And he turns it around. And one of the things that um, I'm kind of big on is that you've got to show people. That these young, in this case, what we're talking about now, man, young men aren't just going to naturally know what it is to be a really good person. You've got to show them. They have to have people in their lives who are going to live that in front of them. So it gives them something to emulate. And I think you see that in this story. I believe it can happen. So yes, I'll probably get a mention in there. A few weeks ago on Life of Faith we talked about relationship minimalism, well today in defiance of the minimalist trend, Justin, you're bringing us Unpacking, which sounds like a defense of hoarding, is it? This is <laughs> going to be really interesting. I'm looking forward to this. Yes,
1: and that music that just brought us in was the theme music for Unpacking. So, this is a video game, a little bit of a different thing in the scene and heard. Do you play a lot canon? of video games. Yeah, not I,
2: expected I, from you, Justin. No, 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 I
1: don't. <laughs> I live, however, with someone People who, who plays a lot of video games. <laughs> and let me tell you, the sort of emotional experience that I feel playing Unpacking, you don't often get, I reckon, <laughs> when, when other people are playing video games. It's supposed to be games. the
2: wholesome video... It's part of the wholesome video game trend.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting. The, the company, I think, is... I, I don't know, I saw some sort of tagline saying humble games in Ooh. front of it. So I love that. It's it's very sweet and it kind of links really nicely. So the the idea of this game is that you're assigned a bunch of boxes to unpack and you discover that the character is moving into her first room, her very own room. Then as years go by she moves into a dorm room and then she moves out with her boyfriend, which doesn't seem to go so well judged judging by the, the gameplay. And you never meet the character, you only encounter them through their stuff which you have to put away (laughs) Um, and this is a game made by an Australian company and it's won Game of the Year um, at this year's Australian Game Developers Awards and it is such a surprisingly emotional experience. And you obviously – well, I don't expect that of a video game because it's so connected to real life. It's like, well, where would I put this thing? Mm. It could be like a souvenir from a trip or a postcard. Where, you know, where would you where would you want to feature that?
2: So is it not just Tetris but with stuff yeah. in the home? I
1: reckon, yeah, Tetris is not a bad comparison. I tell you what, when you go to the boyfriend, when she moves in with her boyfriend, it feels like Tetris. <laughs> and because I started, there's so
2: much stuff. Well, or... he's got
1: such a small apartment and I started to really resent the boyfriend. <laughs> because he didn't look like he had made any room for her. So wow. you experience that frustration as you have to pick up the boyfriend's stuff and move it closer to his other stuff to create room for this character's <laughs> stuff. So it's tapping into real-world emotions. Like any time you've had to clean up after anyone else. Do you know what I mean? i have yeah. had to
0: do that. And <laughs> it, 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 Justine... Apart from the resentment you felt for the boyfriend, I'm interested in that thing you said about this is quite an emotional experience. What sorts of emotions? Well, put it this way:
1: so I mentioned before, like you know, you might have to unpack a souvenir from her trip. So one of the early souvenirs she's got is a London double-decker bus. Mm. Okay, great. Then we see like an Eiffel Tower, and suddenly we see a Leaning Tower as well. So it's like, oh, this chick likes to travel. So there's like that's really sweet, and it's like you're getting to know her, and you see what items that she has that remain consistent, regardless of whether it's her first bedroom or whether she. She's moving back in with her parents at some point after this relationship has fizzled. So it's really interesting. And you're kind of laughing a little bit. Like, um, there's one... Okay, I hate to say it, but it's a slight spoiler. There's one postcard that you can't place. Like, I put it on the pinboard where all the other postcards go. But at the end of that part of the game, the game's like, no, 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 you have to move that somewhere else. So the game is a little bit, um, like, it, it t- tells you There's where to put right stuff. There's a right and wrong. There's a right and wrong. But you can't really see what the postcard is. But I was like, oh, what is it? So I just you're just experimenting, trying to put it places. And when you put it away inside a cupboard, the game's like, that's right. And so it's like, that's the boyfriend. Uh. <laughs> so it's really <laughs> oh. quite interesting. And it yeah. says so much without, you The know, story
2: you, of your life and stuff.
1: Th- yeah, that's right. But without seeing a character, without any dialogue, it's just intuitive and it just taps in so much with your own life. It's just really fascinating. Are
0: you sentimental about stuff?
1: Yes, I am. Like, But I'm sentimental about, like, stupid things like ticket stubs. I mean, mm. I don't know if that's stupid, but it's not like, like my wedding ring, I love it, but... I don't love it at the same time. Does that make sense? Like it's just more the ordinary stuff that you might otherwise throw away that I feel inordinately attached to. <laughs> um, but it's just so wonderful because it, like, I think it's a it's a reply or it feels like a reply, without actually being a reply to the whole decluttering trend of recent years. Do you know, like so Marie Kondo's like you need to get rid of all your extraneous bits and pieces. You only hold this stuff if it sparks joy. But it's like, what about this girl? And she doesn't get rid of this photograph of her boyfriend, even though that has not gone so well. She's she's left it in there. Is she carrying around that as baggage? Well, no, she's found a place for it. It just doesn't have to be front and center in her mind. And nor does she have to discard it like that was a part of her life that's just best moved on from. So I just, like, I don't know whether any of this meaning is embedded within the game itself, but it just helps me and helps, I think, I you know, helps us navigate that broader conversation about what does it mean to have a life, have things work out that didn't work out the way that you wanted it to, and how do you deal with that? I
2: mean, games are kind of, in some ways, an escape from your life, yeah. right? And and the interesting thing about these kind of wholesome or ordinary humble games is that they're a lot like real life, like you, you unpack boxes. You also have to unpack boxes in your real life. Yes. It feels to me as though you say it's kind of a bit the opposite of the Murray Kondo thing, But is it not also playing into that that sense of I can – I need to bring order to my space and this game lets me do that in a way that my actual apartment
1: doesn't. Well, let me tell you, as a mother of two boys Mm. who refuse to tidy up, I will love playing this game as a weird (laughs) reprieve – no, I'm serious – from the chaos of my life. I've even thought – should I introduce this game to my boys to help get them into tidying up? But then I know what's going to happen. They want to play the game and not tidy up. <laughs> so we can't go there. Might be worth a try.
2: <laughs>
0: I'm interested in this sort of ma- the materiality of things that echo or suggest something beyond that. Mm. Is, that is that what's oh, yeah. going on here?
1: I mean, I think this is – it just helps us to – Remember our relationship with our things. Like, on the one hand, yes, a lot of it can be clutter, but on the other hand, things that you have they they bear traces of memory, of time, of mm. um of relationships, all these things that are in some ways immaterial, and you can't grasp onto that in some ways, oh, uh, like this, this material object is a token of that, and it just helps take you straight back there. And I love that because. Um, I remember, Natasha, you shared an article with me which was called Every House is a Haunted House, which I absolutely loved because it's like the writer says things like, we leave memories in everything we touch. If I pick up a pebble, I put it down haunted. So it's this idea that our things bear traces of people and also this idea that material things aren't just what they are or appear to be, but they do connect us to a different kind of order of being, which is not physical necessarily, but is real, right? Like emotions and things that you love, things that you hate, um, just all of that. I think it's really beautiful. I think I, as far as I understand, this is a sacramental understanding of reality in yes. a way where it's, um, it's not just the thing. So in the Catholic tradition, it's not just bread and wine you're having in the Eucharist, but you're consuming Jesus' body and drinking Jesus' blood. That might be a bit, sound a bit crazy to people, but at the same time, it has that substance of this physical thing connects you to a deeper, fuller, richer, uh, understanding of reality. The meaning kind of isn't just in the thing itself, but it stretches up and down and goes in all sorts of directions.
0: Yeah, yeah the sacred uh, spaces, sacred things uh, is evoked from, from what yes. you are talking about. I think that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and I do remember that talk that um, Miroslav Volf did for CPX several years ago where he talked about this pen that was given to him by his father. And it's like the pen is not just any any other pen it is so he's so connected and attached to it is he being materialistic no he's actually he loves it because it is a lifeline and in a weird sort of way to his father it
0: represents a relationship
1: yeah that's right <laughs> Okay, Natasha, you are going to take us through Sally Rooney's Beautiful World, Where Are You? Which might tap into some familiar themes that we've already encountered, things of loneliness or relationship minimalism. Now, I have to confess, I've never read Sally Rooney, but she is a literary (laughs) it girl, I believe. Um, How did you first get into her?
2: Well, I think actually her novels were circulating around the office a bit. and Like
1: at this office? Yeah. Ah.
2: Like a few of our colleagues were kind of... Uh very into Sally Rooney and, um, we all started. So, you know, I can, I can lend you her earlier novels if you like, (laughs) Justin. So Sally Rooney is an Irish writer. Um, her first two novels were Conversations with Friends and Normal People. Um, Normal People has also been made in the last year or so into a, um, TV show. It's on Stan, I think in Australia. Um, and it's been hugely popular. It's really kind of like deceptively simple. Like it's just kind of these young people trying to navigate relationships and self-esteem and life. conversation and meaning and yeah, life. Um, and she's been called by some people kind of the voice of a generation.
0: It's yeah, why, really taken off. Why do you think it's, it is so popular?
2: I think she probably represents um, a particular experience of being young, being hyper-connected to the world around you, but at the same time not necessarily finding the connection that you'd want to. Particularly her new novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Really, I think it kind of picks up the, the characters who are in their teens and in their early 20s in the earlier novels. Not the same characters, but it's the same kinds of people, highly educated, mm. very progressive, um, quite... Cool lot trying to be um, and picks them up as they're approaching 30. Um, The sheen has come off. Yes. (laughs) And they're kind of finding that actually um, they're not really sure what the point of anything is. They feel like they should be grown-ups, but they don't really necessarily feel like they know what they're doing. Um, What's the point of work? Is society rigged against them? Do they have these meaningful relationships? Are they good at relationships? What's the point of these relationships? So all these kind of questions that people all over the world, not just young Irish people who are highly literary, (laughs) as these characters tend to be, read into.
1: Well, it sounds a bit like that Braddy Jabbour
2: interview that we did on millennial malaise. Yeah, yeah. the millennial malaise is a little universal.
0: Her writing is neither pretentious and over literary, nor is it simplistic and throwaway. She cuts through the rubbish and she gets straight to the point and she has a great understanding of inner psychology as well. She's really good at writing modern relationships. When you read it, you kind of feel like, yeah, that could happen to me or someone I know. That was from a launch event for Sally Rooney's latest novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Now tell us, Natasha, what is this novel about?
2: I mean, it's kind of about all the same things that all her novels are about, (laughs) but it is about um, these two friends, Eileen and Alice, um, who have been friends for a long time since university. Uh, And Alice is a novelist. She's written a couple of novels which were hugely and kind of unexpectedly successful. And,
0: you know, it it does sound
2: very like (laughs) Sally Rooney, although in some ways I kind of felt like Eileen, the other character felt a bit closer to the author, though I can't really explain Mm. why I think that. So she is kind of working in a very low-paid job at a literary magazine, Um, and they're both kind of a bit drifting and disconnected. They've had some relationship struggles and mental health struggles. And so it's about the two of them and they write to each other. So we have their inner thoughts, which is kind of a bit of a, an innovation from the previous novels. And then a guy called Simon, who Eileen has been kind of on and off again with for many years, and a guy called Felix, who Alice is just meeting um, and kind of going on a first date with when the novel opens. And so the whole novel is them angsting a bit about life and what the point of their lives are and and about how there are all these things they care about in terms of politics and climate change and all the terrible things that are happening in the world and they're convinced that everything's kind of a disaster. And yet what they really care about is kind of sex and friendship. Like they're always talking about like Relationships, and that's what they fret about. Um, it's what concerns them and occupies their attention, and they also have a self consciousness about that. That they're like, there are these really important things that we do care about, and yet, as humans, we, <laughs> we only totally talk about this <laughs> about these things—the <laughs> same old things.
1: Natasha, you wrote a thinking out loud about this novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You, and you mentioned how. Like Jesus kind of appears. Yeah, I, that was a real surprise to me. Did it? Yeah, it was kind of a real you? surprise. To so you me didn't know as well. you, that that did, that wasn't on the radar for you. You
2: didn't know no. that was coming. So I'd forgotten that in conversations with friends, um, her first novel there was a little bit of Bible reference in there. One hmm. of the characters is sort of reading one of the Gospels, but it wasn't a huge part of that novel. Whereas Christian faith and Jesus, in particular, Jesus himself, kind of features increasingly as the novel goes on. Wow. um, Which I found very intriguing. So, like Eileen, um, Simon, who, you know, she's sometimes maybe in a relationship with, he's kind of a committed Catholic. He goes to Mass regularly and he always has done. And there's this amazing scene where she goes to Mass with him and she's kind of blown away by it. Like she comes from this sort of highly secular sort of milieu where she kind of just thinks of faith as like... Quaint. Yeah, like kind of completely out of date and also oppressive and obviously like she's just dismissive about it. But she really cares for this guy and she attends this church service and is really blown away by like, hang on, these people believe this? And like I, I was really moved by it and I didn't expect that. And she doesn't really know what to make of that. So she describes this to her friend Alice um, who replies to her that she has been reading the Bible, she's been reading the Gospels and that actually she's really fascinated by Jesus um, and that she, she says – It even makes me want to say that I love him, even though I'm aware how ridiculous that sounds. And so these quite involved, like working through, um, like, I thought there was nothing in this and that it was just obviously passé, but actually there's something really arresting and I don't know what to do with that.
1: Mm. Why don't you interview Sally Rooney and ask her what's going on Oh, that'd be
2: great. (laughs) We'll ask her.
1: Is is there a conclusion about, like, where where does that faith flirtation go
2: I mean, it's a novel. It doesn't kind of, you know, tie anything up in a bow, but I think it really ties into what they are um, thinking about in terms of their lives being a bit like, what, what is the meaning? What's the point of me writing these novels? What's the point of me doing this job? Um, are my relationships going anywhere? And just feeling very adrift. Um, like there's this passage where Alice is kind of talking about how in theory, we all care about like other people and about community and stuff, but actually we're really disconnected from others. She says, um, you know, people our age used to get married and have children and conduct love affairs, and now everyone is still single at 30 and lives with housemates they never see. Um, and that she kind of goes, of course, if we all stay alone and practice celibacy and carefully police our personal boundaries, many problems will be avoided. But it seems we will also have almost nothing left that makes life worthwhile. And she kind of views almost marriage and Christianity in a similar way as these frames for life that obviously are the wrong frames mm. and were kind of you know constraining, but that actually without any frame, what they're doing is nothing.
0: Right. And it hasn't been replaced with anything yeah. substantial. Ah. Yeah. And so
2: they're kind of looking at those and going, maybe we do need mm. a reason to do something and to think that what we do means something. And I think Christianity is sort of represents that for the novel, So the, in the option in some ways is left on the table. We yes, don't know. I nice. think so.
0: We've talked about loneliness recently on Life and Faith. There's a bit about that in this book?
2: Yeah, it seems as though you know, the characters they spend a lot of time on their phones hmm. and they seem to have very few people in their lives apart from each other. Hmm. Um, like it, they struggle with, you know, at university, there are a lot of people around. Um, a lot of people have this experience that once you're out of those school and university and those um, settings where you automatically have a web of people that you automatically see, people find that there isn't a lot keeping okay. you connected yeah, I mean, to a lot of yeah, people. You have to own. go to a lot of effort to build your own mm. networks. Unless
1: the structure's already there, in yeah. a way. Yeah.
2: Um, And so struggling with that whole sense of community and not having one um, and also relationships and whether they know how to do them. And so I think what often happens to me when I'm reading a Sally Rudy novel is that I'm like, oh, I'm really into this, but I also don't see where this could possibly be going that I would find satisfying. Like I can't see a good ending for these characters that won't be kind of just – Clichéd, it's all good, or terrible and tragic. Yeah. But in each of her novels, she has actually done this really well, and I've been really impressed because we get to the end and, you know, I won't spoil anything, but the last bit is kind of set towards the end of lockdown. Um, So most of the novel is pre-COVID, but then at the end, they're both kind of writing to each other from lockdown. And they're both in this place where they've really arrived at like – relationships really matter and really do give a lot of meaning and structure and purpose to their lives. And they're still thinking through a lot of that stuff about like, do I need a centre for my life and should that be God and, you know, can that be other people and should I need a centre for my life? Um, yeah, I think it lands somewhere kind of where they're both in a place of possible flourishing. It's a good place to start. Even are that quite constrained situation.
0: Okay, so that, is that summer recommended reading? Yes.
2: I think everyone should read the Sally reading. <laughs> not everybody will love it, but I'd love to know what feel. you think of it, Simon.
0: <laughs> That's beautiful world. Where are you? We've had Unpacking and also Ted Lasso. Take your pick from any or all of those. And
1: vote and the winner will be <laughs> Cruel. <laughs> I mean, Simon, Natasha, I will. I hope you get into unpacking. Look, I don't really like video games, and I played this, and it was great.
2: <laughs> and we all agree you should watch Ted Lasso.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, Natasha Moore, and Justine Toe.
2: Thanks for listening. We'll post links to any content that we've mentioned in the episode. And don't forget about our survey. We would really love to hear what
1: you think about the show as we start to look forward to next year and where life and faith might go. This is your chance to have your say. You know, the show doesn't necessarily belong to us. It also belongs to our listeners. So we really want to hear what you think.
0: Kind (laughs) of. Next week. Crown has always been able to culturally dominate the city. It's the biggest public building in Australia, twice the size of our federal parliament. And yes, too big to fail has become really the reason the Crown still is on probation that any other business in Victoria, after findings like that, would have had a license revoked.